0: Let us pray together. We thank you, our God and Father, for the masterpiece your Spirit produced through Matthew, the tax collector, this Gospel of Matthew that we study together. This portrait of your beloved Son is a work of art, exalted by the subject matter and adorned by the beauty of its composition. As we come to the next portion, Heavenly Father, we pray deepen our love for Jesus through it, and strengthen the grasp of His Lordship on the way we think and the way we make our choices and the way we live and love. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we come now to another major division in the Gospel of Matthew, and what we usually do when that happens is we take a step back and remind ourselves of the shape of the whole Gospel, what the forest looks like, before we look at each tree, and then we look ahead at the portion we're about to look at. So we get a, uh, a lay of the land, you might say, before uh, we set out on the trail together. So that's what we're going to do today. Sort of you could think of it as the story thus far, and then next week on the Gospel of Matthew, or next weeks on the Gospel of Matthew. Let's look then first at the setting of chapter 18 in the gospel, because that's what we're beginning together, Matthew chapter 18. Now, I remind you that the whole gospel is a chiasm. If you're New today, and that's a new expression to you. It's one we've used for many years, so it's not a surprise to the long-timers, but I'll remind, and I will refresh, and I will introduce it, depending on where you are <laughs> in your understanding. It means that the gospel is kind of shaped like an X. The Greek letter chi looks like an English X, and I'll show you how in just a moment. Um, Before we look at that diagram you've got, though, I just remind you that that you can say very simply the way that Matthew constructed his gospel. It is five discourses sandwiched between six narrative portions. So five discourses, kind of like the five books of Moses, and many people think he did that deliberately, uh, but it begins with a narrative, then between the first and second there's narrative, between the second and third, between the third and fourth, between the fourth and fifth, And then the book ends with the narrative section. Uh, We can look at the outline I've given you there. The book is uh, shaped like a a mirror parallelism, and that's what makes the chi. Uh, I'll show you. Nobody will be harmed, I promise. Uh, Take a look with me. You see letter A. What that N means is it begins with the narrative portion. The first four chapters of the gospel introduce the Lord Jesus. They present his credentials, I could say begin to present his credentials by laying out his genealogy, showing us that he's a son of Abraham, a son of uh, Judah, a son of David, the king to whom Messiah was promised, that Messiah would come from his line. Jesus comes from that line. But then Matthew goes on to narrate his conception and birth. It wasn't a normal conception and birth. It was a human one, but also a divine one. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And he was born of Mary, still a virgin. And so Matthew tells us of their settling down in Nazareth. Matthew tells us of Jesus coming to be baptized by the forerunner, John the Baptist, who preached, repent for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. And he baptized people. I remind you, baptism was really a a ritual for pagans, people who were leaving paganism to become Jews. But he was baptizing Jews to show them their need for radical repentance in the light of the imminence of the kingdom. And Jesus comes to uh, to his baptism, horrifying John, but John baptizes him at Jesus' word. The heavens are open, the Holy Spirit descends visibly on Jesus. The Father says, this is my beloved Son. And so Jesus is publicly, visibly anointed as the Messiah. And so begins his ministry. He goes to the desert. He's tempted by the devil. But as Hebrews 4 says, he was tempted in all regards like us, yet without sin. And he begins his ministry preaching as John the Baptist had, repent for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. So that's the first narrative stretch, verses chapters 1 through 4. Then comes the first discourse, and what's that? What do we call chapters 5 through 7? Sermon on the Mount, that's the one. And that sets out the agenda of the king. The first lays out the king's uh, preparation and his credentials. And then chapters 5 through 7, that's a discourse. That's why there's a D there. The King's Manifesto, that's the preaching of the Sermon on the Mount. And it helps us understand chapter 18 to remember that he begins by a series of blessings. He pronounces a blessing on those who are spiritually bankrupt, who've declared that they have nothing, before God, and theirs is the kingdom of the heavens. And he goes on to, to teach the ways and the values and the, the spirituality of the kingdom of God that he's bringing uh, when he comes to fulfill the law and the prophets as he did. Then that is followed in chapters 8 and 9 through displays of the king's authority, a discourse uh, section. And um, in these displays, Jesus shows his lordship In the natural realm, by um, stilling a sea. Trying to combine the words stopping and stilling. Stilling a a, a storm at sea. And then he shows his authority in the spiritual realm. uh, And in the physical realm, by healing at a distance. By casting out demons. By forgiving sin. Exercising authority in all the realms of creation. This shows his lordship. This shows his divinity. Chapters 8 and 9 it's the king's authority. And then in chapter 10, another discourse as he speaks to the 12 apostles, uh, gives them the authority to uh, minister and to cast out demons, sends them out preaching to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then after that, we're followed in two chapters by also uh, another narrative section. And in this narrative section, you could say the plot thickens, although it's been thickening all along. But what... Reception, do we see to the preaching and the working of miracles by Jesus and his apostles? Well, we see that most of the cities don't repent at that preaching. And so here in chapters 11 and 12, we have a increasing cycles of rejection. It even starts with John the Baptist wondering if he was the right person as John languishes in prison and Jesus responds to him. But then we have the record of the cities not repenting and we have the record of the religious leaders increasing in their opposition and their hostility to Jesus, climaxing in their brilliant conclusion that the the way that he was able to do these miracles, his power to do miracles such as none has ever done, comes from Satan. That these works of the Holy Spirit were in fact works of Satan, is what they said. And Jesus says that is an unforgivable sin. That is a sin that will never find forgiveness. It's what we call the unpardonable sin in chapter 12. And this is a climax in His dealings with them. And so Jesus pronounces that generation forsaken of God as represented by the leaders. And He talks again and again about that generation. That generation and their response of impenitence and frivolity and unbelief and rejection. And he tells this parable about a demonized man out of whom a demon just leaves. And when he comes back, he finds the man moralized, reformed. He's, he's all swept up and he's all clean. He's very religious, he's very moral, and he, he's bereft of God. And so the demon, seeing what a neat, sweet deal he's got, goes and finds out seven nastier friends and comes back. And that man ends up worse than he started out. And we read that and we think of individuals. But Jesus says that's the way it is with this generation. That in rejecting their Messiah, they rejected God, leaving them, oh, very moral, oh, very religious, but absolutely abandoned by God and open to demonic influences and so with that narrative, in chapter 12, comes a shift. And you see that chapter 13, letter F in that uh, in that box, you see that's the middle of the outline because that's the climax of the book. In chapter 13, these parables of the mysteries of the kingdom, Jesus now says that given how things have shifted, given that his outreach to Israel and in proclaiming the nearness of the kingdom to them and presenting himself to them had been met with rejection, and final rejection by the leaders, he's now shifting his emphasis and his focus. And chapter 13 explains that, how now the focus will be on the sowing of the word, and it will be received in various ways, like the parable of the sower says. It will have a very small beginning, but it will spread uh, the gospel of the kingdom among many, as the parables of the mustard seed and the... uh, and the um, leaven, say. But throughout this, six, uh, this uh, season during which believers and unbelievers will live together in this world, it will end with a harvest when the Son of Man will send out the angels who will separate the uh, wicked from the righteous and send the wicked into everlasting fire. So that far, chapter 13, the third discourse. And now the portions that follow mirror the first A, B, C, D, E, the first five portions. And so with E, we have another uh, section uh, relaying the king's rejection as the leaders test him, as the leaders challenge him, as the leaders reject him, as people do not receive him. And uh, Jesus' focus in this section begins to be not an outreach to the nation of Israel, but the preparation of his leaders for the church, really. Because it's in chapter 16 that we have the first mention of the church. And remember how that comes up. Jesus is asking, what do men say I am? And they say, oh, this, that, and the other thing. And he says, so you then, who do you say I am? And Peter, having one of his very good days, well, so far, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, you have that by revelation of God. And now I'm going to paraphrase what he goes on to say. He goes on to say that on that truth I will build my church. The truth of my divine sonship, my being God the Son, the Messiah, confessed by men, I will build my church on that bedrock. And that church will be defined by people who confess that truth. And you, Peter, representative of the apostles, you will have divine authority in guiding and starting that church. And even the gates of death will not end that church. And then he goes on to say, right next, I'm going to go and be killed and raised on the third day. And here's the end of Peter's very good day when he takes him aside and he rebukes the Son of God. He just confessed, he rebukes him, and he says, this will never happen to you. But Jesus has just said it must happen. Peter says, no, 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 no. God pity you. This will never happen. And Jesus, who's just called him, his confession anyway, the rock, named him Rock, calls him Satan. And says, get back behind me where you belong, not beside me rebuking me. Get back behind me. And then he says the nature of discipleship, and this also will help us understand chapter 18. What is the nature of discipleship? How does it start? Is it a collegial relationship? Jesus and and we walk side by side, sharing ideas back and forth, spitballing things and deciding what's what? No, it starts off with us denying ourselves, taking up the cross, and walking after Jesus. Jesus. Following Jesus. If we seek to preserve our self-rule, we'll lose ourselves. Only if we lose them to the Lordship of Christ do we find life, Jesus says. And then he says that some here will not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And he takes three of them up into the mountain we call the Mount of Transfiguration. And these three men, Peter who he's just rebuked sharply, but still continues to work with. Peter, James, and John see a glimpse of the divine, kingly glory of Jesus shining brighter than the sun. And they hear the voice of the Father saying, this is my beloved Son, listen to Him. And coming down from the mountain, they come down to failure. On the way down, again, he mentions that He's going to die. And when they get to the, to the, uh, off the mountain, they see that the remaining nine have faltered in their faith and been unable to cast out a demon. And so Jesus has to continue His instruction and His formation of the leaders of His coming church, rebuking them for their, the smallness of their faith, lifting up the importance of trusting God's Word, taking God at His Word. And then uh, again, he tells them of his coming death and introduces the fact that he'll be betrayed in this coming death and resurrection. And then has this little interlude with Peter that only Matthew tells at the end of chapter 17, where the issue of the temple tax comes up. And and Jesus teaches Peter that really, uh, as children of God, really as children of God, they're not obliged to pay for the temple tax, but they should do so anyway to not cause offense to not make a fight that's really not necessary. And then Peter uh, is the recipient of a, of a miracle just for, from Jesus to him as he's sent off to catch a fish. We talked about that, maybe a catfish. And they will find the temple tax in its mouth. And that's the end of chapter 17. So that brings us to this chapter. But before we do, you've seen how it's a mirror. Now look at that little X and you see how it's a chiasm, how it's X-shaped where A is mirrored by A stroke, or A prime, E is mirrored by E prime, and in the middle is F, chapter 13, the uh, parables of the mysteries of the kingdom. So as we come now to chapter 18, we come to the fourth of five discourses. So, I get teased sometime for the, the um, it could be said, leisurely rate of our going through Matthew, although to me it seems like a whirlwind. But we are coming to the fourth of five discourses, so we're well away. And I want to show you a little feature of the discourses. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, which hopefully you think, ah, oh, that's the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And that is correct. So, what do we read at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? We read in verse 28, Now it happened that when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were astonished. Just think of that. Let that echo in your head. When Jesus had finished these words. So now you know chapter 8 and 9 are narrative, and chapter 10 is another discourse. So turn right after it to chapter 11. Chapter 11 starts, Now it happened that when Jesus had finished giving instructions. Ah, So the first discourse ends with, now when Jesus finished. The second one ends with, now when Jesus finished. And maybe when you first looked at 18, you didn't see it as being a discourse, but Matthew does, because look at chapter 19. The first verse after this chapter now it happened that when Jesus had finished these words, and that marks this as a discourse. So you may be wondering, does that same thing happen with the last discourse, chapters 23 through 25? Well, see, I could tease you and say, why don't you look it up later and find out? But I'm afraid you'll all stop now. You do that now, and I'll lose you for a few minutes. So I'll just tell you yes. (laughs) In fact, at the end of that, you you see uh, Matthew says something effective now when Jesus had finished all these words. Marking that as being the last of the five discourses. So Matthew marks this off as a discourse. He marks it off as now the fourth of five discourses. Immediately following uh, his rejection and the shift of the ministry... And that's very important in order to understand it. Now, one other thing before we start looking into it directly is, what is his, uh, what's the setting of this? What is the time frame? We need to see that in keeping with the fact that Jesus is uh, presenting, uh, preparing His disciples for leading the church, He's looking forward in this chapter, and His mind is ahead. Look at verse 17. In the middle of the section where Jesus is talking about uh, what we call church discipline, If the sinning brother doesn't listen to rebuke from one, doesn't listen to rebuke from two or three, verse seventeen, he says, and if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as the gentile. Two mentions of the church in that verse. Where is the church at this point? It's in the future. (laughs) That's where it is. Where? What's the chapter in the Bible that narrates the beginning of the church? You know this, not a trick question. Acts chapter 2. Now riddle me this. Does Matthew come before Acts or after Acts historically? Well, it's before Acts. So Jesus is talking about something and he's thinking of a time that is yet future. There's no church, but he's giving them instructions for what to do. When there is a church. And also verse 20 tells us that he's thinking of a future time. For when two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Is that true at this point? His human nature is just in one place. But when he dies and he is glorified and he ascends to the right hand of the Father, he sends his Holy Spirit to the church, he's able to be present with the church wherever we meet and wherever we meet, as in this case, for discipline. So, this is a discourse that in Jesus' mind is dealing with days to come, specifically dealing with our days, the days of of the church, the day in between his two comings. So now let's talk about the structure of the chapter. We've talked about its setting in the gospel. Let's talk about the structure of the chapter, uh, Roman numeral two. It will, I hope, tickle you to know that this chapter comes in two sets of three. We've seen that so many times in Matthew's Gospel, if you've been here through the whole series. Uh, Matthew loved hearing Jesus speaking in threes, and we have seen many, many sets of threes. And arguably, this chapter itself divides into two sets of threes. So let's walk through that, and I'll give you an overview. And i just tell you, um, a lot of questions will probably rise in your mind as we go through uh, that I will not answer today. Uh, I'll answer that, Lord willing, in the weeks to come as we go come back and then go through this chapter uh, more slowly, looking at it verse by verse and word for word to understand it. But today my, my intention is just to show you the shape of it and the shape of the parts. So, letter A, the first section is the values of kingdom citizens. The values of kingdom citizens. And there is a pun here in using the word values because it both shows the values kingdom citizens must hold, and it shows the values in which they, the value in which they must be held. Their own value, as well as the values that they should cherish. So, uh, and another thing, let me say before we, we dig in, and I'll try to remember to mention it when we get there. Both the first and the second section end with a parable. That's another thing that marks them as two sections. And as we go through, I'll show you why I take these as as sections, the little clues that these are sections. The first section, then, is the first five verses, the question of greatness. I wonder, I hope that you all did take the opportunity to read through the chapter and think it through before you came as I urged you to do in the letter that I sent out to the church. And I wonder, when you tried to do that and you tried to see a a shape to it, was that an easy thing for you? Because it was a very, I see a a vigorous head shaking. That's heartening. It was very difficult for me. I felt like I was a, a... metalsmith working over a hot forge trying to find the the shape in that steel that I was working with. Uh, It was very challenging but very rewarding, and I think that we've seen it, and I'll show you. So first, the question of greatness in verses 1 through 5, which is tied into the context by Matthew He says, at that time, or more literally, at that hour. So he wants us to connect this to what comes before in chapter 17, 16. Uh, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus. Well, what was that time? There's a great irony there, as well as uh, it makes sense. There's great irony in that the last big thing that happened involving all the disciples was what? They got chewed out. For their little faith. They couldn't do this miracle because of their littleness of their faith. And here they pop up and what do they want to talk about? Who's greatest? To me, that's just funny. But it also kind of makes sense, too, because what did we see in chapter 7? Who does Jesus take up into the Mount of Transfiguration? All 12? Just three just three, and leaves the nine to fail at the bottom of the mountain. Uh, So that could raise a a little something in their mind. What do we see at the end of the chapter? Does Jesus pay the temple tax for all twelve? Just Peter and himself. At least that's all we're told. Just Peter and himself. And back in chapter 16, Peter had been told that he was renamed Rock, and that this confession of his would form the rock of the church, on which the church, the boulder on which the church would be built. And then he's called Satan. So Chapter 17 also ended with Jesus saying that they were sons of the King, sons of the Father, the great King. So yeah, this is kind of going on in their head. So then in the kingdom, which of us will be the greatest? Who's going to have greater rulership or authority in the kingdom? This is something that's going on in their head. What are the key words that show us that this is a section? Well, the word greatest, Starts and finishes it, chapter one, uh, chapter 18, verse one, and toward the end at verse four. He says, "Greatest," and then never uses that word again in this chapter. So that kind of shows us this is a section about greatness. Uh, the word translated "child," children," that's used four times in this chapter uh, sorry, four times in this section, and never again in the chapter. Uh, Paideon, Paideon, Paideia, Paideon, the Greek word, and then never used again. So that shows that this is a section as well. Uh, if you've got one of those, one of the translations gives three different translations of the same Greek word. That's got to be baffling, but it is the same Greek word four times in this section. And then the expression, the kingdom of heaven, only occurs in this section, verses 1, 3, and 4, and then not again until the beginning of the last section, the parable, verse 23. So that shows us that this is seen as a, a section into itself. At that time, Jesus, uh, the disciples came to Jesus and said, "'Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven?' And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, "'Truly I say to you, unless you're converted and become like children, "'you will never enter the kingdom of heaven.'" Whoever therefore will humble himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Well, we'll look at that more closely, Lord willing, next week. But I do want to tease you with some thoughts. And and just with the general thought that if you've always just read this and never particularly studied it, you probably misunderstand it. Probably any American reading this would misunderstand it because we would read our values into this section and we'd be dead wrong about our values. Here's a simple question. I don't ask it as a trick. But in America, would we regard humility as being a virtuous thing or a vice? A virtue. It's it's a virtue to be humble, Uh, we think. We'd like other people to be humble at any rate. In these days, it would have been a vice. It was not viewed as something noble, to be humble. To be humble was to be debased. It was to be lowly. It was to be cringing and crawling and pathetic. So Jesus speaks of humbling myself, of making myself cringing and crawling and pathetic. That would be a shocking thing to hear. But here's another thing. Again, do, would today would we speak of having the mind of a child? Is that a positive, good thing, a noble thing to be emulated, to have the mind of a child? Is that a good thing today? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good thing today. Not in Jesus' day. Children were not held up for emulation in Jesus' day. They're, they were not to be. In fact, we just uh, read the verse in Men's Fellowship yesterday, Proverbs 2:15. What is bound up in the heart of a child? Foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child. And that's basically the biblical um, perspective. They're to be loved, they're to be taught, they're to be cared for, they're to be cherished and thanked God for, but they're stupid, they're foolish. They're they're prone to destroy themselves. They're fickle, they're all over the place. They're, They're not held up as things to be admired. So what is Jesus saying when they ask about greatness in bringing in a child and holding him up and saying, you've got to make yourself pathetic, You've got to make yourself lowly and be like this child. Well, that's something to learn from, isn't it? It's a weird thing to say. It's a jarring thing to say. Right off signaling the fact that the values of the kingdom of heaven will not be the values of the world. That that one doesn't learn what's important to God by looking and seeing what's important to society and, and the thought of my time, and then reading that into God's mind. That's not the way to work as a disciple. The way to work as a disciple is is in the opposite direction. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge, and so we start there. And uh, so it'll be it'll be very helpful to look at that next week and see how that works out. Uh, Secondly, then dealing with trap sticks. Verses six through nine, dealing with trap sticks. Just the words trap and sticks. Well, that's that word. The LSB translates stumble and stumbling blocks. Uh, scandalone, scandalizo, uh, sounds like our word scandal. But thinking that won't really help us understand the Greek word. Um, what was a scandalone? A scandalone, I remind you, is is like where we put the cheese in a mousetrap. Now you know just what it is. They didn't have mouse traps. Exactly. So, but they did have traps and they did have sticks. And the sticks were what triggered the trap. Some some bit of bait or something was put there and when the animal jostled that, he was trapped. It was the thing that got him trapped. And so that's what Jesus is talking about when he talks about stumbling. Is not a bad paraphrase. I just use the more literal trap sticks when I translate it. But things that, that trip you, things that trap you. And so, He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. Nevertheless, woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it from you. Uh, Better to go into life with one hand, one foot than to be cast into the eternal flame, the eternal fire. Same with your eye, Jesus says. So what holds this together? Well, you don't see anything about children here. You do see the word little one. Jesus has switched from a child to a little one. You see that in verse 6. And then you'll see that in the next section, verses 10 through 14, 10 and 14. Little ones, verses 6, 10, and 14. What are little ones? Well, the answer to that really comes back in chapter 10, verse 42, where he's used it before. Um, you turn there or not, but do note it down. Obviously, I'll bring it up when I teach this section. But here in the Uh, address where he sends them out as missions, missionaries. He says, and whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones, even a cup of cold water, he won't lose his reward. So what is a little one in that verse? It's a disciple. Whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones, even a cup of cold water. So when he says little ones, he means disciples. Disciples. Uh, he switched from the metaphor to the to the literal. In the first section, he says, "Become as a child," and those who become as a child, he calls little ones. That's disciples. So now he's simply talking about disciples. This is not about literal children, though there's certainly an application there. This is about disciples and trapsticks. So trapstick, that word occurs six times in this section. So again, that's a pretty obvious clue that that holds this section together. It's about trap sticks. So what is that about? It's about things that trip you up or trip others up, that that stumble them in their faith, that trap them up in their faith. They should be walking towards the heavenly kingdom, and instead they get trapped, they get snared, they get tripped up. So first, he starts off talking about the need to protect little ones and how horrible it would be to be the person who brings a trapstick to one of the disciples. How we should cherish them and value them and, and protect them. As we've seen in Hebrews again in the men's fellowship, the need to watch one another and watch over one another and have, have a, a care for one another's spiritual good. And step in with a warning and an exhortation when we see somebody growing cold or, or getting off track. Well, he says here, don't be a stumble and, and, and a stumbling offense, uh, occasion of stumbling, and watch out for it. And then he turns around and says, and make sure you're not tripped up. Don't be the, course, uh, don't be the, the cause of stumbling to another, and don't allow the cause of stumbling within yourself. Don't be that to someone else. and Don't tolerate it inside yourself. But you see, there's kind of a cycle here then. On the one hand, I'm to watch out for others to make sure they're not stumbled, but I'm to make sure I'm not stumbled. But at that same time, then what else is going on outside of me? Other people are supposed to be watching me to make sure I'm not stumbled. Now, do you see how this works hand in glove? That means that I'm constantly to make sure I'm not tripped up in my faith. And so if someone comes up to me, and says, I'm concerned about you because of this specific thing or that specific thing, inside I should say, oh, thank God. Thank God there's somebody here to point that out to me. I didn't see that. I don't want that inside myself. And at the same time, you see that in someone else and you go to point it out. Well, that's part of, the, part of the ministry of the church. You'll see how this comes together perfectly in the middle, that whole section about church discipline. But this is the importance of being a member of a church, a regular involved member. This ministry of looking out for others and being looked out for as part of that church, uh, Jesus puts as being a critically important thing. So uh, the value is that they mustn't be tripped up and we must watch out for them and not be a cause. So this is a, this is a community that Jesus is building here where we protect each other. Uh, we watch over each other at the same time that we're watching over ourselves. And that's a mutual watching going on and care going on in this community. The next section is the value of even one. Verses 10 through 14. <coughs> The value the value of even one. So he goes from stumbling, don't stumble others, to see that you do not despise one of these little ones. So there it is, little ones at the start and end of this, verses 10 and 14. So I'm told not to stumble them. In the previous section, verses 6-9, through nine, now I'm told not to despise them, not to look down on them, not to, to think lowly of them. Interesting, the first section says, I should humble myself, but this section says, don't look at others that way. Myself I should lower, others I should not lower. My estimation of others I should not lower. See, you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually See the face of my Father who is in heaven. Well, what does that mean? I guess we'll find out. And then in verse 12, (laughs) well, I'll tell you this much. The point is, they have angels beholding the face of the Father. And verse 14, it's not the will literally before your Father who is in heaven that one of them perish. So he's saying that as you look at others, remember, these are people the angels watch out over and God the Father watches out over. So are you really sure you want to think low of them? Do you see the sense in that? That's the, big, that's the big point here. Verse 12, what do you think? If any man has 100 sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one? And then when he brings them back, there's great joy over that. Verse 14, he says, in that way, it's not the will of your Father who's in heaven that one of these little ones perish. So, from not causing them to stumble to not despising them. Protection, verses 6 through 9. Valuing in verses 10 through 14. Cherishing in verses 10 through 14. Uh, And you see that this is one section. I've already shown you a few indications, but look at the repetition. uh, Bracketing in verses 10 and 14. Look at verse 10. Do not despise one of these little ones... Their angels continually see the face of my Father who's in heaven. Now look at verse 14. It's not the will of your Father who's in heaven that one of these little ones perish. So see, both those lines are repeated, front and start, closing this in as the third of six sections. Uh, What words do we see recurring? Well, there's a hint in the name of it, the value of even one We see the word one how many times? Well, three times. Isn't that something? Three times. Verse uh, 10, one of these little ones. Verse 12, the one that is straying. Verse 14, it's not his will, not God's will, that one of these little ones perish. What's the effect of that? Singling out one, not even one. a A shepherd would go out searching for one. Uh, don't despise one. It's not the will of your father that one perish. What's, what's the point of that? The, the preciousness of the individual. Kind of the opposite of the megachurch mentality. The church that matters is the church that has lots and lots and lots of people. But the value of the kingdom is the value of even an individual, even a single individual. I remember uh, a book, a really good book, on pastoring called The Reformed Pastor. And the, the writer makes the point that as, as the pastor cares for the flock of God, How much value would you put on on, uh, even a teaspoon of the blood of Christ? That would be a, a greatly precious thing if that existed. But he says, think of this. Every person in the church of Christ has been bought with the blood of Christ. Every person is bought with that precious blood. So how precious is each person for whom Christ has died? So here this section stresses that each one is important. Angels watch over the elect of God. God the Father watches over his elect. And so if if they're that important before the angels, in the presence of God the Father, then I too should value each one uh, of uh, his children, of my brothers, uh, and uh, show them care and not despise them. So once again, this is the end of the first section. It ends with a parable, as the next section will as well. And this brings us to the second section, which is about relations among kingdom citizens. The first was the values of kingdom citizens. And now applying this, we see relations among kingdom citizens in verses 15 through 35. And the first section is the one that probably the most of you are the most familiar with. It's the section on what we call church discipline, dealing with interpersonal sins. Dealing with interpersonal sins. And I think the more you think about it, the more you'll see that all the other sections come together in this section. And the better we understand them, the better we're prepared to understand this. Now, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault. Now, let me just step back and, and remark on something I haven't yet what are the terms in this whole chapter? What, what, what picture do they, 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 they um, call to mind? We hear about brother again and again. We hear about the father. We hear about slaves. What setting is this in Jesus' world? It's a household. It's a household. We're looking at a household. The church is viewed as a household with a father, with brothers and sisters, and actually the brothers and sisters are the slaves (laughs) in the way Jesus teaches. So uh, if your brother sins, uh, sins against you, I believe the best Greek text says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Go reprove him between you and him alone, one-on-one. Well, there's that one idea again, one-on-one. Why are you doing this? Because he's in danger of stumbling, isn't he? He's sinned. What is that? That's an occasion of stumbling. Well, what does that sound like? Section we just talked about. Stumbling. This is part of how I watch out for my brothers. And if they sin, then I reprove them. Point this out to them. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother. Case closed, we're done here. Go home rejoicing. Because that's the goal. Restoration. And again, what does that sound like? Seeking the one that's lost. Every sin is a step in the wrong direction. Every sin is a step towards absolute disaster. Don't you know sin snowballs? Do you know that? Have you seen that? Sin sin snowballs. I mean, I think of the most poignant example I've seen in my whole life of somebody who committed a sin and would not repent. And then there was a a sin to cover that sin and a sin to cover that sin and a sin to cover that sin. Sin snowballs. So one sin is a step in the wrong direction. It's a straying. It's a scandal, a defense, a trapstick. And so when I see it, I come and I speak to my brother trying to win him back. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more and then he quotes the Old Testament. Tell the church, he says. The church is to bear witness. You bear witness. The three of you bear witness. The church bears witness. And then if he doesn't listen to the church, then he's to be excommunicated. Now again, I I just ask you, how do you be in that place without church membership? This is just one of the countless places that show the importance of being a member. How can you be put out of an assembly of which you're not a member? And yet it's Jesus' mindset, clearly, that you're going to want to do that. You'll want to be in a group where people watch over you, and if it gets bad enough, they will put you out. That is part of of Jesus' plan for how we're spiritually cared for. I I know of a church I was involved in once where there was an individual who came into that church and received a lot of service and a lot of help from that church, and in time uh, came to be a real problem, caused a lot of pain, a lot of hurt, and a lot of misery, and his parting word was, you can't do anything to me, I'm not a member. Well, you know he had a point. Was that a godly attitude he showed? Was that in, in keeping with the mind of Jesus here? Uh, no, to both. So, and then uh, the surprise perhaps to many of us, verses 18 through 20 are still about church discipline. They're not little precious prayer promise verses. They're still in that context. Because look, when verse 19 says, if two of you agree, what's that about? That's about verse 16, Take two more with you that by the mouth of two or three, every word might be confirmed. This is talking about people involved in the discipline. And the, uh, the decision that is being ratified by heaven is the decision about excommunicating the person. Verse 20, when it's done in his name. Now remember, gathered together in His name does not mean we get together and say, "Okay, we're here in Jesus' name," so that makes us a church. He doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't say we're two or three are gathered together in my name. There's a church. He doesn't say that. What does it mean to be gathered in His name? Just to say the name of Jesus, boom! Now we got His stamp. Bingo! Everything we do, that's a Jesus thing. What does it mean to be gathered in Jesus' name? It means to be gathered for His purposes, to do His will. What's his will in this situation? Church discipline. What he's outlining here. When you're gathered together to do that the way he says to do it, he says, I'm there. So, well, that's a very uh, important section, isn't it? (laughs) It's a very difficult section. I think it's a scary section. uh, no, No healthy person ever hopes. To have to do this, to carry it to the nth degree. And yet, Jesus makes it central. This is the middle of the six. All the other ones go around this. You know, this is the most difficult one. When you look at this chapter thoughtfully and take your time, you see this one is buffered by all the other ones. This one is preceded by ones telling us to humble ourselves, commit ourselves to caring for each one of the other people in the body. And that's how we approach this. Humbly, out of care, love, valuing the people that we're ministering to in this way. Do you see that? And then obviously the next... Well, I'm not hearing anything. I I guess I should just pause longer. Do you see that? Oh, good. I can move on. And then the last two, what are they about? Forgiveness. Do you think that applies to this section? (laughs) Very much. Very much. So this is really the center of it. And so to Jesus, being in a position where you can be disciplined and being committed to doing it as needed, that's a central thing about church because he puts it right in the middle of his teaching about church life. So, um, first 3 lead up to it. The last two kind of buffer it in the other direction, talking about forgiveness as many times as needed, and without question, Jesus ends. And so brother occurs again and again in this section because that's the setting. This is, a, this is a, a family setting. It's the family of God. Then the next section, the question of forgiveness. So here's another interesting thing about the structure. The whole chapter begins with a question and it ends with a question. You say, well, it doesn't end with a question because this is the fifth of the six. Yeah, but fifth and sixth are both about the same thing. <laughs> And they're started by this question. So I I think we can say justly that the chapter starts with a question and it ends with a question as the first section ends with a parable and the second section ends with a parable. Isn't this a beautiful work of art? The Spirit of God is made through Matthew? Amen. I agree with you. So the question, verse 21, Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? up to seven times. And as you've heard, that was a big number in that setting. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times. No wonder if Peter went, oh, but he goes on to say, (laughs) but up to 70 times seven. Oh, that's a much bigger number. I'm not great at math, but I know that much. That's a whole lot of forgiving going on. Uh, Yeah, well, it's it's, uh, we're going to see that the whole matter of forgiveness is different than what a lot of Christians think, but I'll save that uh, for then, reason to keep coming, uh, if you lack any. But um, Jesus assures Peter that as, as often as forgiveness is needed and warranted, you should give it as many times. Obviously, he doesn't mean, I mean, I don't think you need me to tell you this, but in case you do, he doesn't mean to keep a counter with you you know and when you get to sin number 489 and then you get to sin number 490 and then there's one more you say you're out you're out of forgiveness no more for you no forgiveness for you that is not what he's saying he's he's stating an astronomic number to say no no you forgive as many times as forgiveness is needed and then uh, we have a parable uh, illustrating the urgency of forgiveness, verses 23 through 35. I trust you know it well. Um, the, what he just said is frequency, but here is the absolute necessity. You know the story. It's the story of a steward who runs up an astronomical debt. Ten talents of silver is just astronomical. You know, if you do the math, it's like 479 quinticajillion dollars. <laughs> He say, that's a made-up number. Yeah, that's about right. It's just an astronomical amount. Nobody could ever pay it off. But he's forgiven it. He throws himself on the mercy of his master, his Lord, and he says, forgive me, I'll pay it back. And the master says, well, I'll just forgive you. And then he goes out to find a guy who owes him about a, a third of a year's salary maybe, and he says, pay what you owe, you sinner. How can you run up a debt without paying it? The nerve. This guy's saying that. And then he says the same thing the first guy says. He says, no, no, throws him in jail. And you know, the Lord revokes his forgiveness and puts, gives him to the tormentors and says uh, the closing of the chapter in verse 35 that thus will my heavenly Father do to you. And notice how he says it, if each of you does not forgive his brother from your hearts. So this is the absolute urgent necessity of forgiveness. We will... Study that closely when we get there. Um, And uh, I'll just say to you as maybe a a thought teaser, it has amazed me to hear in my Christian life and my pastoral life that sometimes I will hear a Christian say about someone that he's he's holding a grudge against and um, perhaps who is even seeking forgiveness. He says, I don't know if I can forgive him. And I got to tell you, that always makes me swallow my gum and I don't chew gum. Because I think, have you read this parable? (laughs) Do you know what you're saying when you say that I don't think I'll forgive somebody? You're just just saying casually, I I don't believe I'd be willing to forgive that person. Then you want God to revoke his forgiveness of all your sins? You think you're in a position to, to withhold forgiveness, given what you've done against God. And I think that perhaps it's misunderstanding. Perhaps it's not understanding what forgiveness means. Perhaps they haven't read this parable enough times, but the greatest worry is perhaps they don't realize just how much God forgives us when he saves us. Any one of us, any one of us, to save us, he forgives a a, a million hells worth of sin. A hundred million hells worth of sin. Every one of us. And to say because somebody's done something against us, well, I don't think I can forgive him even though he repents and asks for it. Well, we're not hearing Jesus if we say that. So, two quick thoughts then, closing this survey. The significance of of where we live, according to this chapter. I want us first to see Jesus' focus. Jesus' focus clearly is what? The family of God, meeting as what? The church. What word is twice in the middle of this chapter? Church, church. That's what Jesus is thinking about. That's what's important to Jesus. Fell got himself famous some years ago saying, "Um, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. People thought that was a really cute thing to say. I didn't think it was cute at all. I don't think Jesus thought it was cute at all either. The church was his bride who he gave himself for that he might wash it uh, by his own blood and buy it for himself and make it his own. He loves the church. He calls us to love the church. We're not to despise each other. We're to to humble ourselves and accept one another, watch out for one another, forgive one another. Uh, As we ask forgiveness, as we repent, we're to forgive one another. Uh, That's Jesus' mind. But the church is obviously critical. It's important. He said he built it. He died and gave himself to buy it and and found it. Uh, He indwells it. He directs it. It's critical to him. And for us to say, oh, I don't care, it's not much to me, it's not worth my trouble, it's not really worth my commitment, my time, it's not worth going out of my way for. Or some people I don't even go, you know, maybe I'll, watch, I'll just watch TV or something like that or read a book, but I don't need to be there. Uh, that does not reflect the heart of Jesus, and that does not reflect a heart that loves Jesus and that thinks the way that Jesus thinks. This is the way that Jesus thinks. Calls us to be together with humility, commitment to one another, Watch care for one another and gracious love towards one another. That's Jesus. We want to follow Jesus, we'll go there. So, Jesus' focus is the church itself. And then finally, what is our need? Well, as we'll see as we go through, and I've pointed out to you a couple of times, every part of this is countercultural. This was not what most people thought, the way he taught about any of these things, really. Was not what much, this was not a distillation of rabbinic wisdom. This was not the consensus of Jesus' society. It was not. And it's not now. I'll show you, it still isn't uh, what most people think. But, but what's even worse, or, or more of an obstacle, I should say, it's not just countercultural, it's counternatural. It is against my nature to humble myself, the way Jesus means it. Humble myself? This whole endeavor was, you shall be as God. How do I humble myself when I'm pursuing that goal? And if you're not following Jesus, that's your goal, to work out being God. To humble myself is the exact opposite. Of pursuing that goal. It is to renounce all claim and to disown all ambition of going in that direction. It is absolutely counternatural to put other people, even irritating, inconveniencing little people, and think that they're important and live with them and commit myself to them and forgive them when they wrong my august and royal self. That's counternatural. That, that is unnatural. How do we ever do that? I know how we do that. Look at John chapter 3, and here we'll close. And now, perhaps even more, you'll see the truth in what Jesus says. You may never have doubted it, but perhaps you'll see it even more uh, vividly now. So he, he has an audience with, uh, in the twilight, however, but an audience with this very distinguished individual, Nicodemus. Nicodemus flatters him, verse 2. Jesus answered, verse 3, and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus makes the little joke to try to make it a less tight situation, but Jesus answers, verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. You can't see it unless you're born again. You can't enter it unless you're born again. And that's exactly the point. These things are counter-natural, but they're not counter-supernatural. And the Christian life is a supernatural life. Uh, It is a supernatural life in that it begins with a miracle. It begins with life from the dead. It begins with regeneration. It begins with God sovereignly giving us new life giving us new hearts, opening blind eyes. It begins with a miracle. And so everything that flows from that is a miracle. It's from the hand of God. It's by the grace of God. Any notion that I can work my way into it or work my way through it, mm, that misses the whole point of the Bible. I'm dead. I can't work nothing. I can work into my grave. I can work the maggots a nice meal. That's what I can do spiritually. But God gives life. God gives new birth. God makes children. And we believe in Jesus. So you say, well, I I don't think I have that new life. Well, then I say, call in the name of the Lord. Throw yourself on God's mercy. Waste no time. You don't see that going on in you? That's a serious thing. I'm glad you see that. Praise the Lord. It's wonderful you see that. Waste no time. Throw yourself on the mercy of God. Seek His face. Seek His grace. Seek new life from Him. I urge you, this is nothing to play with. So Jesus' concern about this period is his church, the purity of his church, the love of his church, the unity of his church. Our concern should be the same. And if it is, then we will find that we are countercultural. We'll find that we are kingdom-cultural. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word, and for its teaching. We thank you for your Son the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you for the words from his lips. Father, please deepen and mature us as we hear and learn of them. And uh, God, I pray for, for those who... May I pray that you will not let any of us hear it ca- uh, casually or distractedly, but that the word of God will be powerfully brought home to each of us. Humble us, conform us, transform us to your glory and our blessing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.